And if you're a kid at heart, we're glad you're here. And if you're not a kid at heart, we're glad you're here. <laughs> we are in the middle of the series now called Center Stage. Who's on center stage of your life? Uh, we began it last week, and uh, we are looking at, really, Christ being on center stage. The world teaches us that we need to be on center stage of our own life. We kind of are shaping our own life with our goals and making it happen and creating our own story, but Jesus authored life, and Jesus has the best story for us, and are we brave enough to put him on center stage? That's what this is all about. Even before I begin, I just want to let you know that there are a lot of bold statements that are going to be made today. That doesn't mean that we've got it all put together. We're still trying to take steps ourselves. So let me start with me. There are times, many times, where I suddenly and sometimes surprisingly feel all out of sorts. And sometimes I have to pause and figure out what is going on with me and why do I feel this way? Edgy, short-tempered, something I'm struggling on, stressed out, whatever it might be, worrying, out of sorts. Invariably, there's something going on where somehow I've forgotten the fact that Jesus Christ is on the center stage of the entire universe, and he is in the center of all of history, that he's got this, and I began to try to live out this thing that the world constantly pumps us with, that you've got this, you've got this, and I start to think, As I live independently, I've got this, but I don't, and I start feeling all out of sorts again. Doesn't take me long to find the remedy now, repent, look to Jesus again, honor him and worship him and begin to speak praises to him because I'm acknowledging that he's the center of it all. And as I do that, it's so strange how I begin to recalibrate to the reality of the truth that he's at the center, not me. And that recalibration puts me in alignment in a way where what was feeling so out of alignment starts going, oh, I'm now in alignment again and feeling the peace that comes from him. And so I hope that we start to feel a little bit Uh, empowered by the truths that we're going to jump into in this series, and I hope that as we go, it feels really, really practical and relevant, although we're going to get through some statements that are not easy statements and big ideas that are some hard to get a hold of, and I'm hoping that uh, this whole series will help us in in a really big way personally as we move on. Now, I'm going to start with a... uh, a letter that somebody very creatively wrote when he or she, I'm not sure who it is because their name was Jesse, um, about breaking up with a personification of, a, it was a person, but it's not a person. So that's a breakup letter, but it's, it's dear fear of what others think. So this is a person writing a letter to fear of what others think and breaking up with this alliance and union this person had with fear of what others think. I am sick of you, and it's time we broke up. I'm tired of trying to sound more clever, funny, and important. I'm sick of feeling anxious about what I say or do around people, all in the hope that they'll like me, accept me, praise me. Because of you, I go through my day with a cloud of shame hanging over my head, and I'm, I never stop acting 
the spotlight's always on and I'm on center stage and I'd better keep dancing or posturing or else the spotlight will move and I'll dissolve into a little meaningless puddle on the ground just like that witch in The Wizard of Oz. I feel like cackling right now, but I'm not going to do that. And all of this is especially evil because if I really stop and think about it and let things go quiet and listen patiently for the voice of my Savior who loved me and died for me, it turns out I'm actually profoundly loved and valuable. So, fear of what others think, you and I are done. Or at least, that's what I really, really want. God, help me. And that's how that letter ends. Now, that is really well written. It's a little dramatic. But what we're about to read is even more dramatic. It's deeper and it's more profound It's our verse that we introduced as the series verse. David introduced it at the beginning of the worship today. It's one that I want to challenge you to memorize because it is so profound and so deep. And until it starts to become your way of thinking, it really is not going to have the power to center you as well as it could if you'd make it your thoughts. It's Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with him. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I want to pause a little bit and talk some of those difficult phrases through, because honestly, if you really start to think about these phrases, they don't like flow really easily like, oh, yeah. I mean, some of us who grew up with them and have become so familiar with them and memorized them as kids maybe, oh, yeah, we got this. But stop and think about it. I'm going to kind of cause us to do that a bit by asking questions phrase by phrase by phrase and kind of giving some potential answers. And then I want to reveal something that just kind of took my breath away a little bit this week and some of my thoughts that I had in reaction to it, and I'll share some of that with you as we go. So, what does it mean to say, I have been crucified with Christ? There's a more detailed explanation in Romans 6, and you might jot that down if you want Paul's more detailed explanation, but I'm going to give you kind of a general uh, explanation based on what I know of Paul and that place and many other places, when he says, I have been crucified with Christ, he is talking about how we become united with Christ in his death and in his burial and in his resurrection. Romans 8 makes that clear. The way we unite with that officially is when we say, I do, to Jesus, And we say, I do to Jesus in a covenant ceremony that Jesus established for us. It's baptism. And in baptism, when we're buried with Christ, Paul says in Romans 6, we unite with his death. I've been crucified with Christ. And when we are raised out of baptism, we are literally 
raised into a new life. So the old life is gone and the new life begins in in a ceremonial way we see it. Um, It may have begun earlier than the ceremony for you, but that ceremony pictures that union. And so when we're saying, I have been crucified with Christ, we are really saying a little bit like when a couple who were living a single life decide to get married, and then they make official that marriage, their old me life is dead. And now they're entering into a we life, and it is alive in a way that never was before. And the me life, if it is not dead, will certainly bring death to the we life, and make things rather difficult in a marriage. And this covenant commitment to one another is a shadow picture of something even bigger in covenant with God that God made possible for us. Um, Then we have the phrase, but Christ lives in me. So that's how this union is even bigger than moving from a me life to a we life because it's more than walking with God in a we life together. Now, because of what Jesus did in our union with him, we can actually live a life where Christ, by his grace and through faith we connect with him, his life by his spirit enters into our life to where we literally have him inside of us, empowering us and enabling us to live out this new resurrected life which we could never live out before. And so when we say our old life is crucified, we're literally saying with the resurrection, this new life I have is a new creation that's completely different than the life before that took place. That my spirit before was dead But now my spirit before God has been made alive to literally want the things he wants and have the power to do the things he wants if I will follow the instructions that are here the way Paul describes what this new life looks like. Okay? So what does it mean to say, I no longer live? So if Christ is living in me and I've been crucified, what does it mean to say I no longer live? The all about about me life is crucified. Now my life is all about Jesus. I run into too many people who don't understand that that's what it always has been and that's what it always means to ask Jesus as your Savior. It doesn't mean simply to have him Uh, ceremonially washed you clean so now you get to heaven and you can do life happier and feel more peaceful and no matter what happens and then you kind of do your own me life. It's not a me life. You're not on center stage still adding Jesus to your life as sort of this side character to do, turn to him when you're in trouble. No, it's always been, now you're not the center of your life. He purchased you with his blood, his very life. He becomes the center of your life. Which leads us to another question. What what does it mean to live this out? To say, 
I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That almost sounds like, so like, he takes over? I no longer live? Are we like then marionettes, puppets under the string, where God now has connected all the the strings to help us do all the things he wants us to do and makes us do it? Or is it something different than that? I would say, that's absolutely different than that. And I want to share why I say that, because the next thing that he says is the life I now live. So even though you're crucified, you're now living a life. And this is, see how it doesn't flow real easy? I, I'm dead. Christ is in me. Now the, the life I live, he, he's living it out. But then he says, but the life I now live. So the eye's not gone. When he writes this out, it isn't Christ grabbing his hand and go, here it is. No, he's totally writing it out. He's living a life. And we've got to figure out, how does that work? There is a life I now live. Even though the old me no longer exists, there is a new me. How does this new me live? What does it look like? That's what we're talking about. So it's very, very practical. So, again, let's make the comparison between this is not where God takes over. This is a marriage with Christ where it's all about, like, you're so in love that he's the center of your attention all the time. And that you're doing things to please him. And the church is called the bride of Christ. And that's the motivation behind it, where we become so intimately connected with the one who loved us so much that we so trust him fully, that's what it looks like now to live. So let's use Paul's phrases to describe it. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, this go-around, the phrase that just stuck and struck me and caused me to ask all kinds of questions was, why does he use the phrase in the body? The life I now live in the body. I mean, it reads so much more cleanly if he just simply said, the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That makes perfect sense. So if it makes sense without saying in the body... What are we missing if we don't have the phrase that Paul uses, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God? Do, 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 do. Sometimes they don't pause enough for you to think and let it sink in. What struck me is that question about marionettes. He's describing an obedience, Right? God never makes us obey. Let that sink in. Obedience is always our responsibility. 
Now, let's talk about obedience in the body. And let's talk about the resurrection that has been described here because we crucified our old selves when we united with Christ and we were raised with Christ and Christ is now living in us by his spirit if we trusted him and united with him in covenant, we opened our hearts to him and literally Christ says, I will send my spirit, he will be the counselor, the helper, uh, and he's going to help. It's the spirit of Christ. Just remember, every time I talk about Christ, God, and spirit, the three are totally united, one God, three persons in expression, now Christ is in me. It's the same thing as saying the Holy Spirit has come because Christ released the Holy Spirit because of his work, okay? Let's set that aside for a moment. I'm not a marionette. God, every time I say, you know, who makes my hands? Sometimes as a kid, I was just, it was like this wonderful mystery. It's like, I can't fake my hand out. I can make it close. I can make it open. It's me doing it. And it's not God forcing me. Now, there are some things that God might do that's out of your control, but I'm talking about obedience. He never makes you obey. You can never blame him for your disobedience. He holds you responsible. How does that play out in this new relationship of not only a life with God, but a life where God dwells in us? Let's start here. The resurrected life started inside. Our spirit was made alive when before it was dead and separated from God, separated by sin. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, our spirit now can unite with God. And to show how united we are, God resurrects us by the power of the spirit and the spirit enters into our life and now we are spiritually alive with the spirit communicating with us and giving us new desires new thoughts that are wanting his desires and new empowerment to live out those desires. So we're resurrected. We already have eternal life the moment we unite with Jesus. Eternal life began, but it began only on the inside. Our bodies are still bodies that are dying. I'm reminded of that more now than before. There are new aches and new pains and new things reminding me that I'm on the downhill side, but I have to remind myself, wait, 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 we've got eternity. <laughs> I'm going to receive an immortal, imperishable body when the salvation is completed with the resurrection of my body, which is now immortal, imperishable, and now it's complete. But for now, here's how we live out the faith. We live it out, directing our body. Obedience is so, this was my thought this week, obedience is so bodily. I mean, yeah, it starts with our hearts and starts on the inside and starts with our minds, but you haven't really obeyed until you direct your body to come under alignment with Christ on center stage. We have never been designed to be a puppet. 
Even at the outset, Adam and Eve were told, I want you to reign and I want you to rule. I want you to take dominion under my dominion. The way I reign, the way I rule, you rule that way, but under my rule and authority. They had this freedom under this rule and authority to run their lives and reign and dictate to their bodies how to glorify God. And then they blew it. They stepped onto center stage. And they wanted to run their own life apart from God's dominion, apart from God's will. And everything fell apart, including the entire created order and bodies that were designed to live forever were suddenly separated from God. And with the separation from God, they're now not immortal. They're perishable and will fail us. But Christ came to solve that problem for us. Okay? So, now that we're saved, we're restored into a place where we can reign in and under the kingdom of Christ. And we're trying to align our decisions and our bodily obedience in keeping with his kingdom principles, his kingdom life, and the commands that he gives. And so we, the first thing we have to master is, and now we can and we couldn't before, is self-reign. Ruling over ourselves. One way to describe it is self-control, which I'm fascinated by because in Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23, you read that self-control is actually a fruit of the Holy Spirit. You cannot have self-control until your spirit has been made alive to dictate to your soul and to your body to obey God. Self-control is impossible apart from being made alive your body will dictate to you what to lust after, what to want and what to do. And it's very difficult to master your body and master those desires, in fact, impossible, without your spirit being made alive so that your spirit can dictate to your soul and now your spirit floods your soul. Your thoughts are flooded with God's thoughts and your desires are flooded with God's desires. Your emotions are flooded with God's emotions and you then direct your body even to give glory to God because you want to. Because he's loved you that much and you love him so much and the more you love him, the more you worship him, the more you feel that centered, aligning, not out of sorts, that peace and filled with joy life that Jesus came to give. Do you realize we haven't filled out any points yet? It's like we're, we're like just warming up to the message and I'm feeling myself a little tense because we still got a ways to go. Let's leave that there and jump into what we're doing with this. So I'm trying to lay the groundwork where you're motivated to see this in a very personal way, then I want to give your vision, a grand vision of who Jesus really is because you won't give Jesus center stage of your life if you don't see the reality of who he is and how trustworthy he is and how lovable he is and how you want to love him because he loves you. And so I'm giving you grand sweeping history where he's center stage 
of all of history so that we will give him center stage of our lives. So last week was Jesus is greater than Moses. Today is Jesus is greater than David. And then on week three, we're on Jesus is greater than expected. Here's a statement I gave you last week. I'll give it to you again. God set the stage throughout history with promises, prophecies, and prototypes to demonstrate that the reality was no human invention. Point number one. One son of David would reign forever. David was a national hero in Israel's history. If you don't know the Bible story, I mean, it's a grand story. We're in the middle of it even now when we're talking about David. We're already way past Abraham and way past the promises, a lot of them there that establish a nation. They're now a nation, and David is a hero as a king of that nation. He ushers in the golden age of Israel. He becomes the gold standard by which all other kings are measured before him as well as after him, and there was only one king before him. And after him, all the kings were measured against him, whether they were like David or not like David. And then we're told that there's going to be a coming king that, well, let's just read it. 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13. And this promise is reiterated over and over throughout the Old Testament and new. When your days are over, this is 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13. And you rest with your ancestors. This is the prophet speaking to David and using uh, words to declare God's words to him. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Uh, backstory. Uh, the nation is set up. Uh, David is a palace. He's built a great home. He's feeling like, wait, this little tent that we call the tabernacle, the place for God's name is shabby. Comparison to my palace, we need to build him a, a house. And God says, no, no, no. And then gives this story. No, there's going to be another one that's going to build my house. And he's going to build my house for my name and establish His throne will be established forever, and his kingdom will last forever. Now, because of uh, many prophecies that come after that, and Daniel in particular, who spells out the timing really explicitly, by the time we enter into the New Testament period, when the events of the New Testament are just beginning, the expectation level of the time of the coming of Messiah is here, and it's just like electric, And everybody is like, can't wait till the Messiah comes because they're now under a foreign domination and everything's not going well. The Romans are ruling and it's not pretty and they'd like to have their nation back and they'd like to have these promises fulfilled, okay? So that is taking place. So let's jump into, turn the page from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Point number two, Jesus was that son of David. Jesus was that son of David. He was the fulfillment of these promises, prophecies, and prototypes. Here's how the New Testament begins. The first verse of the entire New Testament, Matthew 1.1, begins this way. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Now, most of the time when we read genealogies, we go, why is this in here? It's so boring. It's like lists and lists of names. But before they get into the lists and lists of names, there's this summary 
And here's the summary, just skipping big blocks to give you, hello, pay attention. Here's the summary. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Uh, On the flip side of your study sheet, there's going to be more into both of those aspects that you can dig into on your own. Let's just move on. Luke does the same thing. Luke 1.32, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. Whoa. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. So they all know the prophecies. They're identifying this was the guy. Okay? And in Luke 2, the reason we have the Luke 2 classic now for Christmas time celebration of Jesus coming with Joseph and Mary and being born in Bethlehem is because he's fulfilling the expectation that he's the son of David. So Micah 5.2 is fulfilled. And here's Micah 5.2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be the ruler over Israel whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So there's going to be this baby that's born in Bethlehem who is the guy, the Messiah. Now, uh, just to speed things up, Peter preaches this in Acts, that Jesus is the son of David. Paul wrote about it in Romans and Timothy, that Jesus is the son of David. John wrote about it in Revelation, that Jesus is the son of David. And Jesus himself claims it in the Gospels, that he's the son of David, when he claims to be the Christ. Okay? And he claims that he is the guy by the triumphal entry. And in Revelation, you read his claim very clearly in a vision to John. So point number three That being said, why was Jesus so quiet about his own identity? Now, what I mean by this, if you're familiar with the Gospels, is he often said things like this, and here's a classic example. Mark 8, 28 through 30. They replied, some say John the Baptist. He said, who who do people say that I am? Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. By the way, that's the Hebrew title. The Greek version of that title is Christ. It's the same, it means the same thing, the anointed one. Okay? Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. You'd think, go tell everybody would be the answer, but you don't get this throughout the Gospels. And so we have to ask the question, why is that? Why does he downplay this identity so often? Well, there's two answers to that. One is a timing answer. It's very practical. If he plays that up big, right up front, he won't have a three and a half year long ministry. They will crucify him early. And he needed to lay the foundational groundwork, not only for the apostles, but for all of us to have so that we understand what it's all about with his teaching and the foundations of it all. So it's a timing issue. But even more importantly than that one is one that's often overlooked and we don't really get it, but I want to help us kind of get this. He was anointed by God, not by human campaigning. This is very critical because there were kings who who humanly campaigned for their position. There were kings who grabbed that power David was not like that. It puzzled all of his followers because David was anointed to be king during Saul's reign when David was just a kid, a little nobody. 
He knew he was anointed, but he never grabbed it. Jesus knew also, but he refused to grab it. To power grab the anointed position would have been wrong. So like David, like Jesus, we also must learn, don't power grab and make your own story. Just honor Jesus with your obedience, and he will write a beautiful story. I want to finish with a statement from Paul in Philippians to help us see this theme come through really clearly. Philippians 2, 8 through 11, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Everyone will know because he was willing to go to the lowest of low. God exalted him to the highest of high because that's who he was. But the exaltation is very clear. And every tongue acknowledged that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's finish with what, how we finished last week. It's the same statement on the screen. Jesus is the center of all history, and he can be the center of your story too. But this, for this to happen, you must see him for who he is and gladly give him the center stage of your life. If you're not sure and you're still running your own life and you would like to be more sure, would you start just by memorizing Galatians 2.20? Would you start to just let these categories settle in? Would you then begin to seek his face? You can actually literally lead your life to center bodily by using your lips. Lord Jesus, I honor you and exalt you as Lord of all. I bow before you. I worship you as Lord of lords and King of kings. Would you reign in my life? I'd like to know you better. I want you to be my savior. I want my life to be all about you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you do us a favor and all this week try to remind yourself to pray for the big events for hundreds of kids to come closer to Jesus. This is a big week for us. Prayer is what's going to make it even eternal. Pray with us. See you next week.